Welcome to Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. I'm your host, Carter Hawkman, and joining me this week is longtime play-by-play broadcaster for the LA Galaxy, Joe Tutino. How are you, Joe? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. So... We spoke briefly beforehand, and you had mentioned to me that you were also, in fact, a goalkeeper yourself growing up. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into goalkeeping. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm an Italian-American, and uh, so soccer was kind of the first, first sport in our family. And uh, me, being a, a little pudgy kid, rather than running around, I was good with my hands. <laughs> and, uh, and so just like, you know, I, I took an affinity to goalkeeping. I grew up in San Diego and and uh, our professional team at the time was the San Diego Sockers of the NESL. And uh, I just liked the goalkeepers. I mean, Alan Mayer was my first hero. And uh, my uncles would shoot the ball at me. And uh, I had no problem taking a dive here and there. And, and uh, picked up that position and just watched and learned and, and went from there. What were your favorite aspects about playing the position as a kid? Uh, it's kind of weird because I think when you're a kid, you actually like diving. Uh, and at least for me, it was that, that feeling of being midair and catching the ball and bringing it down and, and learning how to land as opposed to landing improperly and really getting hurt. Uh, that, that all, all of that aspect was the first thing as a kid. And then you learn the other parts of positioning and distribution and all the other stuff that goes along with it. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I remember having my first ever goalkeeper coach and you don't think about it, but you have to relearn how to fall. And it's something you don't have to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Trust me. I haven't, I haven't played in a long time. And, and, you know, I think a few years ago we were out at the the Bay and we picked up the ball and and set up some goals and I actually dove once. And then I said, okay, no more. My body can't do this because I don't know how to do it anymore. And uh, and so, yeah, you're so right. You have to learn that and it has to become second instinct for you. And, and it's, it's a lot harder than people think it is to play the goalkeeper position. So growing up watching the NASL, from what you saw, what were the basic requirements of goalkeepers? And, and were you able to watch the position slowly but surely change as the game in the, in the, in the United States grew? Absolutely. I mean, for, as I mentioned, you know, Alan Mayer was my first hero. He played for the San Diego Soccers, and he was one of those American goalkeepers that would leave his line. He'd get out to the top of the box or just beyond the penalty spot to, to cut off crosses in the air, things like that. And so he was kind of dynamic. And, uh, and later on, uh, he got into a contract squabble with the club, ended up going to the California Surf, and the Soccers brought in a different goalkeeper, totally different a gentleman by the name of Volkmar Gross, who was uh, one of the top goalkeepers in Germany. He got caught up in some scandal and so had to come to the United States and played in Minnesota. And then from there came on to the San Diego Soccers. His whole demeanor and goal was different, completely different. He was, his was all about positioning. And so for me as a youngster, and I'm talking about nine, 10 years old now, I'm looking at this and saying, what is going on? But after a while, I learned that, well, no, wait a minute. He's the more sophisticated goalkeeper. He plays the position more correctly. Let's put it that way. 
And, and so that's when I started paying a little bit more attention as to how the position needs to be played. And there's a time and place for certain types of movement. And you could even argue that especially today's modern goalkeepers are a heightened combination of those two. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think I think uh, today's modern goalkeeper is the old sweeper that can use his hands. Uh, you know, and I'm not so sure I like it, but at some point I'll probably learn to like it. Uh, but right now, just watching our American goalkeepers, how they play the position, it's a little, it's a little concerning, uh, terrifying at times. <laughs> but uh, but then again, I I also like the way Greg Berhalter is a very understanding that certain goalkeepers in his roster can play that way, and others like Matt Turner are more traditional, and you're not going to ask him to do too much. Um, in playing out of the back, which is fine with me. I think as long as we understand that what the, the qualities of the keeper are and play to those qualities, then I think we're okay. Oh, absolutely. And that's a, that's a conversation for a whole other podcast. <laughs> but moving back to the NASL, and aside from the two names that you mentioned, who were some of the biggest names in goalkeeping during the, NASL, the NASL's existence and what made them stand out in your mind? Well, there was Jan Van Beveren. Uh, that I, if I remember correctly, and he was another big goalkeeper, very much European type goalkeeper that uh, just played in the box, positioned himself well, did not leave their feet unless they had to. Most he was also a different sir, a European goalkeeper, but also would leave his feet. Um, Alan Mayer, who to me at that time was probably the best uh, American goalkeeper that I saw in person. And uh, and Allen was was very good at cutting angles down in one on one situations. And back then, the NASL had the old shootout from the 35 yard line. And, and Allen was one of the best in the league at that time uh, in, in in playing that. And again, we're talking about the late 70s, early 80s. That was a big deal. And so so for me, that was the first positive impression. So there was a lot of different play. At that time, though, when you're 8, 9, and 10 years old, you don't know. You just kind of go along with it. But later on, you look back and say, okay, yeah, I witnessed a lot of different type of goalkeeping and a different, and different type of play. One thing that's been clear to me over the last 25 years in the United States is that path from the college game to the professional game with you know the MLS Super Draft, which incidentally is slowly but surely being, being taken yes. out of MLS. Right. Um, what was the process like from playing in college to moving on to the NASL? Well, you remember back in the NASL days, especially in the early, in the seventies and into the eighties, the requirement in the league was you had to have two Americans on the field at all times. So that was, you know, that's complete flip as to where we are today, where we are perception wise and everything else. But it was, you know, if the American was on the field, your job was run around, get the ball, and give it to a player that's much better than you going forward. You're, you're not a creative type. You're a plumber, and you're filling a spot. And uh, my old broadcast partner was probably the best American at the time, uh, Ricky Davis of uh, the New York Cosmos, who later on in life told me, no, my name is Rick, Joe. And, uh, but anyway, uh, we went on from there. But, uh, you know, those were the guys. And, and in San Diego, we, the, the first American, I would say, star, we had two, uh, but at different times. Ty Keo, 
which is uh, ended up uh, playing for the U.S. national team and also broadcasting a lot of U.S. national team games. And uh, Kevin Crow, who came on a little bit later and was uh, a central defender uh, and played really well and had a long career, both outdoors and indoors. In terms of forward players, they were few and far between because the big stars were coming from Europe, even though they might have been aged. But the 35-yard line was the great equalizer. And so, you know, the Canalias and, and you name it. I mean, I saw Cash Dana play in person for the final uh, four years of his outdoor career and did not know how great this player was until later on learning that, well, 1978, he was considered one of the top three players in the world, in the World Cup. And so you kind of you learn all that stuff after the fact because we just didn't have the pos- the, the, the coverage that was necessary to, to really – tell the story of who these players were and we're learning i learned after the fact what i was able to see i mean i hope i saw hugo sanchez in person before he went on to spain for two years in san diego with leonardo cuellar who was the captain of the mexican national team and sanchez was was up here for two years and then ended up going to spain you know at the time, you, you think of, okay, he's a Mexican star, but you didn't know what type of player this guy was going to be. And again, you're 10 years old, and you just don't see that yet. You don't have enough equity in the sport to understand it. But, but I was fortunate to see some great players. How do you think the implementation of the MLS Superdraft changed the way that Americans were brought into soccer? Well, I think... I think the MLS Super Draft was important uh, in a time where the American player was starting to be uh, sophisticated enough to be on the field. And so we, we, we were able to go from the Super Draft to uh, what it was called Project 40, where we were identifying players a little bit younger. Uh, and then was a team Adidas uh, that we went on to that as well. So where we were able to pay these players a little bit more money to be able to play and, and, and have a, and make a living. Right. Uh, I, I think the super draft was good in the early days of major league soccer, but, but I think what we've learned, and this is not to throw the super draft away is that for American soccer to get better, we need to identify our talent at younger ages. And I'm talking about 12 to 14 years old and uh, do a better job of that. And, and back in the day, NESL and even the super draft, we had ODP, and ODP left a lot of players out, unfortunately. And, and hopefully we're doing a better job today of that. So the, the NASL played its final season as a league in 1984 with the last ever champions being the Chicago Sting. Mm-hmm. Was there any mention of the idea of a new professional American soccer league on the horizon at the time? Because that's a 12-year, that's 12 years before Major League Soccer's inaugural season. And, of course, we had the MISL, the Major Indoor Soccer League, which certainly generated buzz. But as you and I both know, indoor soccer is a completely different game. And even that came into an end in 1992. Yeah, you know what I would argue, though? But the missile missile ended up putting uh, the death nail in the NASL on top of the on top of the mismanagement of the league, the NESL, because the missile was exciting. The missile was able to bring in fans who did not really like the outdoor game, American fans who did not really like the outdoor game because there wasn't enough scoring. And so what we ended up having, which was a situation of these great outdoor players that were put on a hockey rink 
and they were able to show their skills in tight quarters and score these magnificent goals and put in five and six a game and goalkeepers that were real, true, incredible goalkeepers making these great stops as well. And we saw a slower down version of hockey, a better substitution pattern than hockey eventually developed by Ron Newman and the old San Diego Sockers with the, the way they, they dealt with their benches on the short end and the long end. And, uh, you know, think about St. Louis. St. Louis, they were selling out the Checker Dome. They were rivaling, rivaling crowds of the, the Blues. And, uh, and the Sockers, they chased the Clippers out of San Diego. The Clippers were getting four and 5,000 a game. The Sockers were getting 10,000 a game. And uh, so we started seeing that. And unfortunately, those NASL owners that had outdoor teams, they're looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute, this is the way. This is where the American fan is. And the demise of the, the missile really happened on one bad decision, which was leaving USA Network and ESPN and signing on with what which was Sports Channel America that had zero coverage and had really zero markets and where the, the missile teams were. And that began the fall of the MISL. And, and then we had the tribes of the outdoor leagues, you know, the Western Soccer Alliance or the whatever it might have been on the East Coast. But we never had a national league until MLS came aboard. How did you see those goalkeepers who came from the NASL transition into the indoor game? Because it's a completely different game. Yeah, for some, it was difficult. For some, like I was saying earlier, Volkmar Gross, uh, big German goalkeeper. He helped the Soccers win their first championship, but it was the it was pretty the pretty much the death nail to that type of goalkeeper. Uh, and then you had uh, Tino Latiri. You might remember him from the old. I think it, he went from the Minnesota Strikers onto uh, well Vancouver Outdoors to the Minnesota Strikers Indoors. And he started to become like the prototype goalkeeper that could play with his feet, had good distribution with his feet, and was a great shot stopper. Alan Mayer's career took off indoors, uh, and and was because his distribution was not necessarily with his feet; it was it was with his hands. And, and then I learned something, maybe I would say less than ten years ago. Uh, another reason why the missile did so well was the fact that a lot of the Eastern European players that that defected into the United States. Well, when they defected out of the Soviet bloc nations, FIFA suspended them for two years and four years from playing outdoors because they defected their federations. So they couldn't go back to play for their federations because of course they'd be arrested. And so they couldn't play outdoors here in the United States either. So what they ended up doing is they basically gave talent to the indoor game. So the Steve Jungles of the world and the Zoltan Totes of the world, those guys had to go play indoors. And, of course, they were incredible players. And, and they, they helped create what was an exciting league in the 70s and into the middle 80s. So bringing us back to 1996, and MLS is now, the officially, is, is now officially the, the U.S.'s top flight outdoor American soccer league. Right. This is a three-part question, but what got people excited about this new league? What was going to make it different from the NASL, and what were the big concerns surrounding the league? Because I remember you saying in an interview that people described it as 10 teams named by interns at Nike and Adidas. Right, and it was, <laughs> unfortunately for us. But uh, 
and, and it wasn't taken seriously enough outside of our game. Uh, I think when 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 Major League Soccer started, my colleagues in sports radio just kind of scoffed at it. Soccer, you know, great. The World Cup was here. It was a success. But you know what? That that buzz is over. We'll see you in four years. And our American national team isn't that good. Really, we, we you, know, you, you have a lot of naysayers, a lot of the curmudgeons that were the newspaper writers. And even in the early days of sports radio, they they despise soccer. It was it was a pain in the rear. It's like, why are we doing this? I mean, nobody cares about it. It's baseball, football, basketball and even hockey. You know, they just kind of put up with hockey. And uh, unless you're in, you know, the East Coast states and or the original six and, and so forth, or the one time the Kings made the run in the early 90s to the to the Stanley Cup when we first had them on my station, you know, that's when you paid attention. Uh, and so and so that's what I was dealing with, being one of the guys, you know, championing soccer and pigeonholing myself at the same time. But, hey, this is why I got into the business. But that's what was happening. And unfortunately when the league expanded and then had to contract, that was evidence on their part. Those people are saying, okay, you see, there's the experiment. It's going to fail. These guys are going to close up shop. It's done. And we were, we were very lucky. We were very lucky that for, for Lamar Hunt, uh, Mr. Anschutz, uh, the Galaxy's owner, and, uh, and Robert Kraft that decided, you know what? No, no, we're going to keep this league going. And they took it on their shoulders and they shouldered it. And uh, and they put a lot of money into the league. And and suddenly we started to see the traction we needed to see. And we're very fortunate, very lucky to be where we are today. What was the big signal for you that made you say, OK, MLS is here to stay? When the Galaxy opened up their stadium in 2003 and up until that point, even when Tim Laiwiki came into our broadcast booth at the Rose Bowl, and Rick Davis and I were doing a game and he came on at halftime and said, oh, no, no, you guys, you guys think the Columbus Stadium is nice. Just wait to what we're going to build. And we, we looked at each other because we just were wondering, you know, how long is this going to survive? And we wanted it to survive, but you just didn't know uh, because all you hear is the league is losing money hand over fist at that point. And uh, and sure enough, you know, Wiki and Mr. Anschutz, uh, you know, they 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 were good to their word and, and created what was a, an incredible stadium for major league soccer in 2003. And when that opened up and the team played what the first eight games away and uh, opened up in June and it was a cloudy day. It was an overcast day, which we call June gloom down here in, in Southern California. And then you see Pelé come onto the field right before kickoff and everybody's in awe of that situation. And you just looked at the stadium and you said, this is, this is a state-of-the-art stadium for the time. And they spent $250 million in the complex. And I'm talking about 2003 now. And uh, you look at it and you say, yeah, this is, this is not going anywhere. We're not closing up shop next week. That's not going to happen. Now, before we get back into goalkeeping, I know this is something that I've been curious about. And you kind of mentioned it before. But, but what's your take on the old one-on-one penalty shootouts? And, and just for those who, listening who might not know what we're talking about, would you, able to, would you be able to explain what it is or what it was? Yeah, well, the old one-on-one shootout was, it's a, in the NASL, it was easy because they had the old 35-yard line as the offside line where it began. So that's where they would put the ball. So 35 yards away from goal, they'd actually bring these massive clocks onto the field that would put five seconds on the clock. 
And, and basically the goalkeeper had to start from his goal line, the player from the ball, and he would have five seconds to either round the goalkeeper, whatever it might be, to get the shot on goal. If the goalkeeper made the save, then you didn't have a second shot at it. It was that's that's how it was. And uh, and so, you know, the keeper could come off his line, cut the angle down and so forth. Or the player could round the keeper or take the early shot, depending on how good they were. I you know, I look at it this way. It required a, a bunch of different skills used in five seconds, dribbling setting, shooting, goalkeeping to come off their line, cutting down the angle, making the dive to the save, or smothering the ball at the player's feet. So in that regard, it was it was more of a skilled penalty shot than than our spot our spot kicks today. And we can argue that, but that's 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 my view on it. Oh I'm not gonna argue that. I'm yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna let you know. No, talk your about listeners it. might, so yeah. I mean, do you have some favorite stories or memories from the old PK shootouts? Um, just, uh, you know, they were all bad news for my soccers. I mean, because they would get to the final of uh, whatever it might be, the conference final. And there was one in Tampa Bay uh, where they would have had a chance, I believe, to go on the soccer bowl. And they lost. Uh, there was one in Chicago against the old Chicago Sting. And that, I think, was the 79 season when Alan Mayer was in his contract squabble with the Sockers. And at that point, Ron Newman was the head coach in San Diego. And Volkmar Gross played the entire game. And Ron Newman knew how good Alan Mayer was in the shootout and decided to make the change in overtime uh, to bring in Alan Mayer. And unfortunately, Alan did not do well. And, uh, and the Sockers were eliminated. So those are those are the ones I do remember that were in important matches in terms of uh, playoffs and so forth. And uh, those are the ones that come to mind for me. But I mean, they were always exciting. Nobody ever roots for that. Uh, Maybe as a kid, I might have. And again, not really understanding where we needed to be at the sport. But. uh, But I I, I had no problem with the missile or MLS having that shootout, I think it really falls on the soccer snobs and the traditionalists saying, well, no, we're not, we're not the European game. If we do this and the ties are important to the game. And, and I'm fine with that too. I just really wasn't in a position to saying, Oh my God, I can't watch this because it has a shootout. I just wasn't at, I wasn't that type of fan. I was good with either one. And if we, if we stay with this style of play, I'm good with that also. That's completely fair. Yeah. And, so moving back to goalkeeping, um, a lot of fans of, of Major League Soccer can point to goalkeepers like Tony Miola, Tim Howard, and Nick Romano for being key pieces of making MLS what it is today, along with shaping how the goalkeeping position is even played. From your time calling the game, what was so amazing about being able to watch them play and develop? Um, I'll start with Tony. Um, I think Tony Miola... Uh made himself into one of the great American soccer goalkeepers at the end of his career. I mean, really having all the tools, a distribution, uh, command of his penalty area, command of a six yard box. When he played in Kansas city and ended up winning the championship, uh, I was fortunate enough in one of my post game shows to tell him that. And I think he really created, made himself into a very, very good goalkeeper and really, you know, a pioneer for the U.S. 
I mean, think about it. He's the goalkeeper in 1990 when this young team finds its way to Italy to play in the World Cup. And and I, the game must have m- moved a thousand miles an hour for that team in the three games that they played there in Italy. But, hey, he got in there. He played against Italy, had a good game against Italy, unfortunately, against Czechoslovakia at the time. Uh, that was a tough one and uh, led to, you know, that pretty much sealed the deal uh, for the USA. But, you know, after that, I think I think you look at Nick Romando and Nick's an interesting story, too, because Nick, Nick started out in, in D.C. and was OK as a keeper. I mean, the story early on for Nick was crosses into the area, corner kicks into the area. Not good for Nick Romando. And that was because he was vertically challenged. He was a short keeper. And uh, and so you looked at that and said, this is this is a problem for Nick Romando. And you wondered if he was just going to be a guy. And then Nick just got it. You know, all of a sudden, you know, he got the knack of being able to be the best penalty kick stopper that the league has ever seen. He became the best player on the on the field and goal in terms of playing the ball with his feet and distribution from punts to pat to throwing to playing the ball with his feet on the ground, Uh, you know. You know, I take I take my hat off to Nick Romano in terms of the type of goalkeeper he became from there. And, and you threw another one at me. Who was the other one? It's Tim Howard. Uh, and Timmy Howard. I mean, Tim Howard to me, I think sews it all together. But Tim to me is more of the Brad Friedel, Casey Keller uh, fabric of goalkeepers, and uh, and what he became abroad. But I think I think. Ultimately, when I looked at Tim Howard, Tim Howard, the greatest thing about him was his shot-stopping ability. Um, that's where I see him as, you know, I look at, I just did an interview yesterday regarding Landon Donovan's career. And, uh, you know, the distribution on the goal that Landon scored uh, versus Algeria was, was somebody, everybody needs to look at that because he understood the moment. He understood the player breaking out of the right side. He understood how to get that ball onto his foot. It wasn't a punt. It was a, it was a throw. And, and all the credit to him for starting that play and being able to play him in stride because playing him in stride was the key to launching Landon up that right side. If, you, if he has to wait on that ball, you have to, if he has to cut back, if he has to chase it down to the touchline, we might have a whole different ending to that particular play right there. So... I, I look at Tim in that way because I think he had a great start in New York, and then when he went abroad, he really cut his teeth there. I want to come back to Nick Romano for a second uh, because, and you mentioned it, what he was doing, especially with his feet, was wildly ahead of his time in terms of his distribution abilities and being able to pick players out with his side volleys. Yes. How much, how much of an influence from him specifically do you think he had on the game and the position? I think he, for the for American soccer, I think he was he was a, a, a trailblazer in that regard. Um, we had that we had that with punting. Uh, I was always a, I was always one of a fan of, of of goalkeepers who could do the drop kick because I always felt that you'd have better control with that. I liked it personally. I felt I had better control with the drop kick uh, to where I can spray spray the field better and know I can send it into a certain area even even pick out a player from time to time. Nick took it a, another step further with the side volley to be able to really get that ball and have it skid out in front of the player so they can run onto it and not 
allow for the defender to play center field, right? So that big booming ball, and it's easier for the defender to have the first first crack at it. In this particular case, the player on the let's say it's on the wing that's getting this ball, he's getting it in stride. The defender has to turn and run to their own goal, and that changes everything. That's breaking a line. Who are some goalkeepers through MLS's history, in your opinion, have flown under the radar and maybe deserve some more recognition for their impact on the game? Well, I think I think goalkeepers that we've missed, I had a chance to see both of them in person. Uh, Kevin Hartman, during his time when the Galaxy won the 2002 title, their first title, Kevin Hartman was the best shot stopper in the league, in my opinion. And that's one part of goalkeeping, but he was the best shot stopper, in my opinion. Uh, he battled with Matt Reese that year for the number one position, and they platooned for a time until Kevin took over the job on a full-time basis. Uh, Matt Reese turned out to be an incredible goalkeeper in the league, and we just talked about Nick Romando. Matt Reese was very much the same type of goalkeeper there, and in fact, Matt Reese could probably be a field player if he wasn't a goalkeeper. That's how good he was with his feet. But I think in terms of playing the position, Nick took to that part of it sooner than, than Matt did. Uh, that's the, those are the two that come to mind for me um, at the moment, having seen them and, and obviously even seen Matt even more when he played with the New England Revolution. Uh, Aiden Brown was another one. That was before Matt in New England was another one who was a traditional goalkeeper. I saw Brad Friedel when he was in Columbus uh, before he moved on. Another traditional goalkeeper, but what he was in 2002 was incredible for the USA. Um, those are the ones that come to mind at the moment for me. I mean, uh, everything else is now kind of fast forwarding to today and I, you know, and, and I hate to be biased, but I like what I see from Jonathan Bond in goal for the galaxy right now. I like what I see in a, in a young Jonathan Klinsman, uh, growing up into the position. But as we know, keepers, keepers that in, when they're 23 to 25, they're still babies in, in this sport. So it's going to take a little time. So you, so what you're telling me is you still think Matt Turner has the potential to be even greater for the revolution? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I do. I, 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 like, I like the fact that nothing bothers him. I love the fact that nothing bothers him. Uh, it's, it's water off a duck's back. And, uh, and I can tell you right now, if, if he was incompetent in goal, Bruce Arena would never have him there. No chance in heck that he would be there. I just, I think I just needed to hear that from you as a New England Revolution fan myself. Um, well, you have, you have the best goal. You have the best manager in American soccer history there right now. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. So, you know, as you're well aware, goalkeepers are stereotyped to be the crazy ones, the, hmm. the, rec- the reckless ones. I, I, I've heard it all as a now former college goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Who are some goalkeepers that come to mind that you've watched in MLS that have contributed to that stereotype? And who would you say project themselves on the field as the crazy ones, but off the field are the cool, common, collected ones? Oh, that's really tough, man. That's a tough one for me to deal with because uh, the, the only the crazy one I saw in person uh, who play again, and I, I will use the galaxy of reference because those are the ones that I see on a game in and game out basis uh, was uh, Clement Diop, who, who actually got the, the opportunity to start in Montreal on a regular basis. Uh, he was, he was kind of crazy in terms of how he played the game. And, and you kind of look and say, well, why, why are you doing that? You know, why aren't you reading the game a certain way, right? You have an expectation 
on how how to read the game, how it's happening. And uh, that was a little bit odd to me. And there, there were a few in the league that that were just good stop, shot stoppers, but boy, man, there were rebound machines in the league. And uh, I, I don't want to name them because I don't think it's fair to do that. But that's the bit that's in terms of goalkeepers that had their issues in the league. That's the part of goalkeeping that I think they really have to make sure they, they have right is that it's great to be a shot stopper, but man, you can't be a rebound machine because you're def- you just killed your defenders. If you're just giving up spilling balls in your six all the time or, or shy of this penalty spot, you got to get that ball out of there. Oh, I completely agree. And it's, it's, one of the biggest things that I think has changed about the position over the years is, you know, back in the day, you could make a great save and just you didn't need, you didn't need to hold on to it. You could just try and parry it as far away from the goal as possible and make it look acrobatic and make it look <laughs> athletic. And now it's all about it. everything, everything, everything is about control. Yeah, and and, I, and I'm okay with that. I really am. I'm okay with with a goalkeeper holding on to the ball. In fact, sometimes I'd like to see that a little bit more as opposed to giving up corner kicks. Uh, because now you're giving a set play opportunity away. And uh, in this day and age of zonal marking uh, in, on corner kicks, that's that's just, uh, you know, we're, we're still not good enough there in that regard, league-wide, uh, to do that. And I'm still not sure that I think that's the right thing to do, because if as a former goalkeeper, I like everybody to mark up and know they're all marked up. And if a ball comes into the area that I can get to, then I, I'm gonna, I need to go get it. I, you know, I have the gloves on, I can jump and I can also extend with my arms. So I should be able to get any ball in the air. And if my players are marked up against somebody, then, then I'm, I'm comfortable in that way. And I'm not having to dodge anybody going to the ball the way I look at it, but that's, that's a whole different story. But I, I, am still of the ilk that if you can hold on to the ball, you should hold on to the ball Uh, to, to bat a ball away and and send everybody into a tizzy trying to find this from from a defensive standpoint you're likely sending it into the stride of the player that's crashing in on goal and you're at a disadvantage so hold on to the ball if you can i was the exact same way when it came to marking on corner kicks and set pieces i was way more comfortable just knowing that i owe that there was a man you know, responsible for somebody who was trying to get it, responsible for marking somebody who was trying to get it past me. And, you know, in college, from what I remember is w- what we did or what our what our head coach had us do was sort of like a hybrid. He would have their more dangerous players that, that we knew in the air. We would have them marked or double marked, and then the rest right. were, were there to roam free, um, which, you know, it worked for the most part. But um, it's just, it's definitely, it was definitely a comfort thing for me as a goalkeeper. But after calling the game in Major League Soccer for the last 25 and a half years, what would, you, what would you say is something that fans still misunderstand about what goes into the position? Because there's so many things that are said about goalkeepers, like how they're supposed to handle the pressure that they're put under, handling mistakes, drowning at the noise, things like that. Well, I think, I think what is missed upon this, and some goalkeepers do it, uh, but not as much as they used to, having the, the command and the organization of their defense – and it's for whatever reason, somewhere along the way, uh, that has been put that's been put on somebody else's shoulders. And for me, the goalkeeper has the best view of the game. The, the best view of the game is coming from the keeper. He knows he knows where they're going to overload. He sees the overload coming 
before anybody else does, especially if you're if you're marking your man and if you're a center back and you're paying attention to where the, the strikers are or whoever's making that run, the goalkeeper sees that beforehand or he should. And and to me, the communication from the goalkeeper is the most important thing in terms of setting up the defense. And I've always said this. A great goalkeeper makes a great defense, and a great defense makes a great goalkeeper. It has to work hand in hand because if a goalkeeper comes in that is that is great, and all of a sudden he has a back a, a back four that's not very good, he's not going to look very good because ultimately you can't save them all. And if you're and if you're seeing twelve to fifteen shots a game on some bad teams that are not playing well defensively, you're going to get exposed, and that's and that's with anybody. And uh, and so, in my opinion, I think I look I like to look at positioning. I like to look at if they're vocal and and, uh, keeping keeping their center backs in the right positions and and making sure that that when somebody is breaking that goalkeeper is looking over that back shoulder and having an understanding who's going to run to their back post. And the other part of it is that I never like to see a goalkeeper dive backwards. And uh, and that's another part of goalkeeping that you have to look at, because a lot of these goalkeepers will will flop onto their butt or dive sideways and they make everything look spectacular. And to me, when you make the proper save is you're getting off that push foot and you're diving somewhat forward to get that ball at its highest point uh, or at its closest point to you, as opposed to flopping on the ground and all of a sudden they scored and well that goalkeeper had no chance well no that goalkeeper had a lot of chances if they played the position properly now finally um you know as as the commentator for the galaxy in its entirety you've been able to call some of the best names in the game you know when i'm, when I'm thinking of guys like zlatan ibrahimovic yeah steven Gerrard, david beckham robbie Keane. i mean what just for you? What's that been like to just be able to call their names in the booth and watch? <laughs> I I have been the luckiest broadcaster in the league, honestly. Uh, just to see that, and uh, because everywhere you go, it's a sellout, right? Everywhere you go is a big deal. It's not, and it's not just the stadium itself. It's it's even the hotel because people know who these people are, and they know they're in town, and they come looking for them. And you can tell, you know, you you can tell they're watching us from afar in the hotel lobbies and all that stuff. And, and just, I mean, it, you know, I'll tell you this. When David Beckham came to the Galaxy, one of our first road trips was to New York, okay? And that's after the Galaxy flipped their, uh, their colors and their, and their uh, crest, all right? And I was staying in the Man- Manhattan Hotel, the W Manhattan. And uh, so I walked in. And, and back in those days, you used to wear your polo shirts. It was all part of, you know, being aware in soccer, right? So the, the make it wear this awareness to the team so you wear your polo shirts on the road and and so i walk into the hotel and i'm getting you know checking in and uh and i'm the only one there with a galaxy polo on and and all of a sudden i started hearing these chirps from people hey the galaxy are staying here and let me tell you something nothing we never heard that before david beckham joined the galaxy because the only thing i ever heard before david beckham joined the galaxy was what's that pointing to our logo well that's the la galaxy who are they well they're a soccer team playing in in dallas or wherever oh yeah who are they playing against once david beckham came in not only did everybody know who the galaxy was anybody who had a team in their town knew who their team was 
and and perception changed and so the spotlight came onto our sport criticism came onto our sport in our country but he's the one that opened the golden door you talked about robbie Keane and steven gerrard those are just the guys that came to the galaxy Terry Henry, who came into the league as well. A lot of the biggest names that came over came after David Beckham that still had meat on the bone that could perform in Major League Soccer. They weren't at the end of their careers and got beat up by, by a, maybe a league that's not sophisticated enough. And, but they all went in and they measured themselves against those big players. And they measured themselves against David also. And unfortunately, David was here his first year, was on a bad, bad ankle. I mean, he shouldn't have been playing. But he played. To his credit, he played and did the best he could with the, with the team around him that wasn't very good. And uh, but yeah, I mean it, it's been incredible. I mean I've been very lucky. I mean Zlatan was incredible. Those two years were a joy. I mean it was fun to watch him and just his you know just his personality and just to see him say something that might be controversial and laughing at himself at the same time. You just knew, okay, I know who this guy is. He's a joker. But it was also intense and people that don't like to lose at all. And, and David was that way. And Robbie Keane was that way. And, and, and Steven Gerrard was a class act all the way through, even though I think he realized early on when he came to the States that he might've been a fish out of water, that he missed his home. And, and I, and I, and I can respect that too. But, uh, but during his time here, he was, he was a class act, you know, and Landon Donovan was a class act and Kobe Jones and seeing what, what Kobe was. And Kobe was the first, I think, our first MLS player that did transcend our sport, you know, during the MTV era and all that stuff. So I, I just been very lucky. And the, and the Galaxy have been, you know, that team that's been willing to to bring those players in on the on the Mexican side, Luis Hernandez. And, and when he came over, that was that was the first time that we kind of shook the trees, so to speak. And uh, and then we took another step and, and hopefully we're getting better players at younger ages now. And we at some point can compete in the market of the of the Cadillacs of the world, as opposed to as opposed to, you know, the the high end Toyotas for the sake of argument. Yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible. And I'm, it's been especially just this season alone for me being able to watch, you know, my team like the New England Revolution grow and start to bring in those guys has been fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, look at the players that Bruce has brought into New England. I mean, you guys, I don't think you you have had um, more than one at a time there. But now you're looking at four and five of your starters that have elevated this team. I mean, even during the time of, of Taylor Twelman and Deuce, those guys became great these guys that are coming on coming onto the team, they're already expected to play. Those guys were pleasant surprises that turned into great players, and, and that's fine. But that's it's a different that's a different thing. Expectations compared to pleasant surprises are not the same thing. Very very different things, and that is where uh, we will end it today. Joe, thank you very very much uh, for coming and for coming on today and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Guys, this has been yet another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Thank you very much again for Joe Tutino for coming on. I have been your host, Carter Hogman. We will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Just for Keeps, 